There was a deliberate decision, and you know, people have commented on this, to get big in the early noughties. There was, a, there was a strategic choice made that scale, financial scale, turnover equated to influence, equated to impact, as a, and it was a proxy. proxy. So, yeah, of course, we thought lots about, we strategized a lot about how we were going to grow. But have we, have we thought as much about the consequences of that in relation to our values base, our heritage, our history, the political activism that is, is rooted in humanitarian action? I would say not. Now, we may disagree on this a little bit. Calling the next Grand Bargain the Great Leap Sideways. This is the podcast from hell. Grand Bargain. Decolonizing aid. Twenty-six. Humanity. Humanitarian action takes place at the edge of chaos. And to find the right answers, we need smart, honest conversations. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to Humanitarian. I'm your host, Lars Peter Nissen. This week's guest on Humanitarian is Gareth Owen. He is the Humanitarian Director of Save the Children UK, and he's come on the show to talk about a chapter he has written in the book Amidst the Debris, where he talks about the rise of the humanitarian corporation. A lot of the conversation is around the tension between what Gareth calls his humanitarian heart and his humanitarian realist. If you listened to last week's episode, that will sound familiar. Last week, Tamriz Khan and Mabala Nialugu, who both works in the aid industry in East Africa and in South Asia, spoke about how their frustration with the business model or the industry that we work in has led them to the conclusion that they need to continue their careers outside big aid, outside the institutions that dominate the sector today. Not surprisingly, Gareth offers a different perspective. He sits in almost the exact opposite end of the humanitarian food chain, namely inside the headquarter of one of the largest institutions we have in the humanitarian sector, the Save the Children family. As you'll hear, I really enjoyed the conversation and I want to send a big thank you to Gareth for coming on the show and being as open and excellent a guest as he was. Enjoy the conversation and don't forget the bit about making noise on social media and recommending the show to your friends. Gareth Owen, OBE, welcome to Humanitarian. Thank you very much. What an honor. I've been uh, looking forward to this. You are the Humanitarian Director of Save the Children UK, and we've known each other for a while. We decided to do this conversation because you have uh, written a chapter in a book called Amidst the Debris, Humanitarianism and the End of the Liberal Order. Now, why don't you? what, what is that book about? So this book which I'm very proud of, uh, is a product of the humanitarian affairs team at Save the Children and its various partnerships with um, academia in the UK and around the world. And really, I suppose the, the starting point in this is to promote critical reflection in general in the, in the aid sector, um, to counter this kind of retreat from thinking that we see as a, a feature of modernity generally. You know, everyone's clicking online, everybody reaches for the Netflix binge. Where, where is the new thinking happening? It's a, it's a problem that's cited, you know, generally in society, I think, you know, this kind of retreat from thinking in, in the modern world. And I would contend that it is one of the major challenges of the aid sector is the retreat from kind of philosophical, political thinking within an aid industry that has set that aside 
in the 21st century in favour of economic growth. That That is what I kind of describe in my own chapter, which we'll come on to. But the book in general is, a, is, is deliberately provocative. The title itself is provocative. And it's not branded, as you'll see, as a Save the Children product, because firstly, it isn't. It's a collaboration with many institutions. But it is positioned in this kind of space of, you know, kind of the outer edge of what we do, where where we're trying to think systemically, where we're trying to think politically, um, very deliberately, um, because the, the challenge in, in big institutions of any kind, especially big, busy aid agencies like, say, the children or indeed any of, any, any of the agencies, is that I think, personally, they struggle with this kind of notion of thinking for thinking's sake, because we, we're in organizations that are about action, they're about delivery, they're highly managerialized in the modern way, and it can be seen as something of a luxury to spend time thinking. And that, for me, is a challenge. So we wrote this book to sort of sh showcase, really, what contemporary political thought around humanitarian action that isn't policy, that isn't kind of, here's a list of recommendations. It's a, it's a reactivation of history, in many ways, of the humanitarian sector over the last century. I... So maybe let me just pick up on, on this, uh, we don't think for think the sake of thinking. We, we do. I think maybe for me the challenge is slightly different. I think we like to think about money, we like to think about scale, we like to think about big, but we don't like to think about quality operations, accountability to the to the populations we serve. I mean, it's not, I don't think it's like we're not thinking, but we're thinking about how we can get the money and run. Well, we're thinking about the wrong things, aren't we? I mean, money, what you're describing is something that features strongly, you know, it's, you're describing the liberal order worldview <laughs> in many ways, as represented in, in modernity, in late modernity. I mean, if you look at Save the Children, if you look at most of the big organizations that you know, we're, you know, we're familiar with, all the big INGOs, the UN agencies, there was a deliberate decision, and you know, people have commented on this, to get big in the early noughties. There was a, there was a strategic choice made that scale financial scale turnover equated to influence equated to impact as a, and it was a proxy proxy so yeah of course we thought lots about we strategized a lot about how we were going to grow but have we have we thought as much about the consequences of that in relation to our values base our heritage our history the political activism that is, is rooted in humanitarian action i would say not and so in a way what writing these kind of books is a counter to that to suggest that there are consequences of all our decisions and if you avoid, you know, constant critical reflection around the ethics, because ultimately that is the point, right? I mean, critical reflection is, is the ethical foundation of our practice. So if you subordinate that, and which is what I talk about in, in my chapter in the book, to economistic behaviors, you know, homo economists, <laughs> the modern way, then you are losing, at risk of losing some of the soul of what we're about. And I would suggest in today's aid, aid, aid world, <laughs> whether it's Ukraine or anywhere else, the consequences of a highly economized aid system that is driven very strongly by you know, master signifiers like money, there are huge, huge challenges with that. Let's return to that point in a little bit. I'd like to just walk through the, the chapter you, you write. I think central in your writing is sort of the tension between what you call humanitarian realism and the humanitarian heart. So on one side, the need to actually get some things off the ground and scale is not bad in itself. We can help more people if we get more money. 
On the other hand, as you say, the ethics, the personal conviction that I think many of us have, uh, the reason why we do these things. So, th so I, I suppose, I mean, my, my, I mentioned my maternal grandfather at the start of the book, who was a Shakespearean scholar, and uh, he wrote a famous book about um, uh, called Shakespeare's Doctrine of Nature, which is about the play King Lear. And it's kind of a, it's quite relevant. I mean, Lear has been turned into succession recently. <laughs> you know, fame. so the story reemerges about what I would consider and what he would consider one of the sort of great paradoxes of human nature. But also, it's a big paradox in the aid sector. And essentially, big aid agencies acquire resources from the powerful in order to counter the worst effects of of the acquisition of excess resource by the powerful. That is essentially what we do. So in other words, it's sort of a history lesson I'm rehashing here. Uh, the role of civil society has always been to counter the worst effects of the prevailing political economy in the world. That's certainly where Save the Children came from. But there is, a, there is this inherent paradox. In doing that, you risk being co-opted by the powerful. And that is part of the story I'm telling in, in the 21st century story of Save the Children. And would you agree that it is this tension between the heart and the realism? Is, it, is that a good way of, of expressing it? Yeah, I mean, heart and realism, soul and economics. I mean, you have to have both. It's about balance, really. And, and I guess what I'm describing as something of a cautionary tale, having lived through all of, say, the children's 21st century kind of, and taken active part in the strategizing for growth, I believe in impact. I believe in scale. One of the great joys of working for a big humanitarian organization is we are always present where children need us. We, we have the means to mobilize very, you know, very importantly, uh, large-scale response in the face of you know, egregious uh, abuses of, of children's rights, of human rights, of massive humanitarian need. So I'm not saying scale, I'm not in the camp that says scale is bad. I'm not sort of, it's not sort of E.F. Schumacher, small is beautiful. That's not my contention. My contention is, as you do these things, be very conscious of the, the effect on your identity. Yeah, and you could say that you're in the wrong job if you if you believe that small is beautiful, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, you can't face into a world of enormous humanitarian need like we are in now in 2022, where the numbers are off the scale, and suggest that small is going to is going to bring help to all those people who need it. It just isn't. So you have to be in the business of operating at scale, but you have to do that with constant reference to your ethical foundations. Now, if you look at the the big families of of NGOs we have. Would it be fair to say that Save the Children may be the family that has chosen to focus most on scale? I mean, that it's it seems like you growth, growth, growth has been such a an important thing for you. Um, it's definitely been you know what I've what I've sort of contended with and participated in you know for the last twenty one years at Save the Children growth, but it has been you know there's sincerity in that. It is this point we're making about impact? It is, but it's the issue of it being a proxy for for true impact, for quality, for where, where other measures are subordinated to the, you know, the financial kind of imperatives. And that's driven by neo-managerial thinking from boards uh, onwards, you know, and that, that is changing today. But do I think SAVE is any different to the other big INGO families? Not particularly. I think it was Barney Tallock uh, did a study uh, a few years ago on this, which showed pretty much SAVE may have jumped on this kind of strategy early, but it was definitely adopted by the other big families as well. We're not the only ones who've taken a, an aggressive growth strategy. No, maybe you're just better at it than the others. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't. That's not for me to judge. But I think what's interesting uh, about about this kind of competitive drive is how 
we chose to sort of not fight that because it would have been pointless. I mean, we would have, I'd have been out of a job if I, if I was trying to say small is beautiful. But to how to turn competitive advantage into collaborative advantage has been much of the story uh, of my time as humanitarian director. And maybe that's something else we can talk about. But this kind of, the problem with, the problem with this kind of, one of the other deeper problems that we, we talk about in this book to a certain degree, it's less so in my chapter, but other, other are the more sort of philosophical chapters. You know, talking about how kind of, the whole point of the book is sort of to create vibrant thought and to create vibrant debate and to provoke. Because a lot of what goes on that I see in the aid world is kind of shouting into echo chambers. It's not really debating anything. It's not enriching. It's not deepening understanding or insight. It's sort of othering and, you know, all the, all the stuff we contend with in modernity. So, so the kind of stuckness that aid finds itself in isn't being, there aren't pathways out of that through thought really yet that I, that I think are new. So I think people are really just rehashing and they're at risk of making the same mistakes as a result. Which is another reason why you've got to go deeper with the thinking. I, I fully agree with that. And I think if you look at the way in which we try to improve the sector, uh, the humanitarian reform, the transformative agenda, the grand bargain, I mean, they have made a difference, clearly. But it's also clear that there are diminishing returns on these re reform attempts and that the, the residual problems we have cannot be solved in that way. We, we need some new thinking. We need a new business model, a new set of actors in order to be able to, to move forward. Yeah, and I think by having a, a team here at, say, the children whose job was to critically reflect, unattached to the sort of threshing machine of the daily business very deliberately so that they weren't going to be forced into a position where it's well give us the policy answer give it you know it's, it's so interesting when you confront busy leaders i include myself in this you know the the instinct for answers reductionist answers you know move past the difficulty of thinking onto action it's one of the things that dogs aid you know and you see it all the time you see it in something like ukraine today where trying to use kind of rubrics and premises of aid that are no longer apply in in a vastly changing world in transition it's just there isn't no one's pausing and saying, "Hold on, let's go deeper. Let's get back to sort of political philosophy around this of the kind that was very vibrant in the aid sector in the '60s and the '70s, arguably, and fostered a lot of change and a lot of growth in aid and a lot of new organisations." I think we're at that time again. I see that in the critique of the kind of mainstream aid that sits in the periphery, and I think that is that is what we have to contend with, you know, and we have to sort of embrace that. And we have, to, but by doing that from within, means you have an opportunity to sort of you know, change leadership mindset. You're not a protest movement on the outer edge. You know, you're connected into the metropolis where I sit, you know. Before we get back to that discussion, because I think that is the central point, what is the credibility of that voice coming from inside an institution like this? Can, can we just go back uh, to the different big operations that sort of uh, has shaped the sector and, and where you in the, the chapter describe Let's start with, with Rwanda in, in 94, yeah. right? How, what did that mean for us? I mean, I think the aid sector, sort of once every generation, has a dramatic kind of crisis. And I think the Rwanda post-94, I, I, I was very lucky. I, I, I missed the Rwandan genocide. I say I was lucky because I'd, I was on my way there in 1994 from Angola, which is the second civil war I'd been in at the age of 25. And I was already very damaged as a result of two civil wars. So luckily, somebody stopped me from going. Otherwise, I don't think I'd have stayed in the aid sector. And indeed, there aren't that many um, of my vintage of aid worker who went to Somalia and then Angola and then Rwanda who, who kept going. In fact, there are very few because I think it did so much damage. So it was a very traumatic experience. It came at a really interesting moment uh, in the sort of 
in modern geopolitical kind of uh, history because it was just after the Cold War. It was the end of you know the Cold War. It was the end of history according to Francis Fukuyama. American hegemony in the world was proven. You know we were at the end. That was you know that was uncontested that 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 you know as a result of the you know the, the end of the Cold War. But obviously that's changed. So Rwanda happened and the. The, it's remembered mostly for things that didn't happen, you know, didn't, the non-intervention in effect of the, in the genocide. But what happened, of course, is that there was chaos post-genocide post, uh, in the aid operation, and it spawned this huge kind of crisis of, of kind of standards and accountability and organization, which produced you know, a raft of initiatives like Sphere, like the Humanitarian Accountability Project, all sorts of things. So it was a crisis of, of, of kind of, you know, of... Of quality, I think, and, and accountability in the aid sector, and then later on we've had a crisis of kind of influence. You know, at the start, which probably spawned the growth period. You know, our aid agency is still relevant in the political world in the beginning of the twenty first century, and now we have this kind of crisis of legitimacy. So these periodic crises are are times of reflection for the aid sector, but then uh, the extent to which there's a deep new philosophical kind of premise emerging out of any of those kind of crisis periods is, is questionable. You know, we sort of kind of keep going with the same stuff that we've been doing for half a century. But if we go back to Save the Children, how did Rwanda change Save the Children? Um, I mean, the, the, the big decision was not to work. You know, Save the Children chose not to engage heavily in the, in the, you know, the genocide response uh, for a variety of reasons. I mean, it was already present, you know, doing work. But it... it, it um, I think it Save then participated, um, you know, in all as Save always does. I mean, Save is ubiquitous in any kind of attempts to reform the sector uh, after after a hundred years, as are you know many of the big agencies. Um, took part very much, helping you know the Sphere project, and you know, and I, I, I admire Save for that. Save's always, tr you know, tr yes, it's big, yes, it's kind of industrialized. Uh, welcome to the modern world, but it. There is a there's a there is a strong moral conscience at Save the Children that that is very permissive, and you know that's why I enjoy working here. Whilst I know what my day job is, and and the whole point is that we're here to save children, there is space, there is space in the periphery of that to look at systemic change, to sponsor systemic efforts, um, and that you know this this critical reflection work is is an example of that alongside the other things that we do in kind of systemic supporting your organization for example yeah know, we believe in that you know we believe in being a in global being a globally good citizen of the sector you know yeah we should say for full transparency i guess that uh, save the children has just funded uh, acap's work in ukraine for a whole year and i promise dear listeners that i'm not going to go easy on gareth because no, of that uh, on uh, the uh, contrary uh, uh, it's not the first time we've uh, we've supported your organization we've always believed in in acap's and your work and you know that's a collective effort from the dc agencies to support your work and rightly so i mean that's you know the quality of kind of collective collaboration is is, is obvious for us in, in relation to that so yeah no so i mean save save has always tried to sort of keep up and be at the forefront of efforts to reform in a positive direction in the aid sector um, but I think my issue is I think it's I think it's still on the surface a lot of this. I think it's not contending with the kind of neo-feudal capitalist realities that uh, you know that that are the truth of much of modern age, right? The way you describe it then is is ninety four save is a bit on the sideline. You don't jump in fully. You choose yeah. to stay a bit at a distance. When we then get up to ninety nine, you have Kosovo. How did save? So the Kosovo crisis was an important moment for for the re for the humanitarian sort of reimagining in in save the children certainly in save the children uk um decisions made in the 1990s saw 
a lot of the sort of operationality that Save UK had been known for, you know, around the world, kind of disappear quite quickly in, in an era where, you know, focus on rights and, and the sort of policy side of life and, and advocating for that, looking at the sort of bigger picture, kind of started to take precedence over operational delivery, which I think was a challenge for lots of, you know, I don't think Save was unique. Um, but then the Kosovo crisis happened in Europe's backyard and Save was slow to react. Uh, I know because I was on the ground uh, working for a, another organization I was heading up uh, Action Against Hunger's work in Kosovo. And you could see, you could see, you know, there was this kind of lack of operationality playing through an organization that had kind of structured that away. Certainly, most of the operational capacity in Save from UK was still in, out in East Africa. Um, so mobilizing that, you know, for Europe was proved difficult. And I think, you know, that's often the case with big agencies that are, you know, they, they can be sort of like slow oil tankers turning and they're not that agile and everyone, everyone knows that. But once they get going, they get going, they get going big, right? Um, so it was a big moment. I think it, it sort of kind of, it reminded the organization that humanitarianism lay at the heart of the, you know, the, the work of say the Children Rules had for a century. Um, and so there was a desire to sort of rebuild that. And then, uh, then post, post Kosovo, in the, we had the Iraq crisis. And then the real moment was the tsunami where, uh, you know, this, a huge, a huge international aid operation on a global scale. We all know the history of that. But it's, it happened to Save the Children. <laughs> Save the Children hadn't strategized in, in, at that stage around, around sort of serious investment in humanitarian growth. That came after. So actually what you're saying is, 94, we chose not to be that heavily involved in the operation for various obvious reasons. Yeah. 99, we missed the boat. A little bit. Mm. Iraq and the tsunami in what 2001, 2 and 2004. Yeah, that's really I think you describe it as the point of no return. Well, because what happened in 2005 was there were three major emergency responses: there was the tsunami, which was profound. I mean, no one had ever seen anything like it. The, the, the scale of you know human compassion on a global you know global scale was enormous, right? So it was a really big change moment. Um, but then it was followed in the summer by the Niger crisis. It was followed in the autumn by the Pakistan earthquake. So there were these three huge uh, emergency responses in one year, all of which reminded this organization of the power of public engagement with humanitarian action, which had sort of been going out of favor. And if you think about how big organizations like mine work, that is their bread and butter. I mean, we engage the public through a variety of PR methods to, to mobilize their, their consciousness towards responding to the plight of children in distant places. Um, and that is very powerful, and it remains very powerful to, the, to this day. And alongside that, the strategy of growth was around ever-increasing acquisition of state-sponsored aid, which had a fundamental you know, effect on the kind of structure and the mindset of leadership in the organization. It changed the, the, the character of the organization hugely and peaked you know, more than a decade later. Uh, when Save the Children UK was about 75% funded by state sources, which made, you know, a considerable, you know, when, when you're dealing with power like that, 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 that will have considerable influence on the decisions your organization makes. And I, I kind of reflect on, on some of that as we, go, as we went through the 21st century in, in, in my chapter in the book, where I, which I've entitled The Rise of the Humanitarian Corporation, because that's what it felt like to be part of it. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm, I'm sort of reflecting on, on the experience of that, you know, as I, as I lived it. And so you're saying you take the big money and that fundamentally changes the organizations you need to be able to do anything from anti-terror checks to 
insane log frames with indicators left, right, and center. You need to have fundraisers uh, going out and getting funds from the public by uh, appealing to them in order to not be fully dependent on the state money. So, but your de- the, the, the the thinking problem here is that you're dealing with capitalist bureaucracy the whole time, which is what has become enormous in the 21st century. If you look at the rise of, you know, the, the methods of capitalist bureaucracy on aid, this is the critically reflective point. And, you, and it goes back to sort of, you know, it is a, it is kind of a, it's kind of a, a neo-feudalistic model of, of power that is being, is being you know, applied to the aid, aid sector, if you're honest about it. And it's an uncomfortable thing that I'm saying. But, you know, uh, what I mean by neo-feudalism is power in the hands of the few who then impose a whole load of regulations on the many, and that starts to immediately feel like the aid sector, doesn't it? And that control has been very, very, very explicitly increased in the 21st century. And I think it is a concentration of power that you see in terms of where the money is coming from, but also who gets the money, right? Big agencies such as yours and the UN take up the vast majority of of uh, of the resource. I mean, the controllers who are states impose a regulatory environment on their partners uh, through commissions, through all sorts of uh, legislation. If you look in the 21st century, the rise of you know anti-terror legislation, anti-fraud legislation, global data protection, safeguard much of it you know legitimately necessary, but the effect of it has been to create an environment where of increased surveillance. Uh, of uh, you know an expectation for compliance under the guise of risk regulation. Now, if you were to take a sort of historical view of that, you'd be in the territory of Jeremy Bentham and the you know the Panopticon. <laughs> you know the famous story. Bentham is I mean one of the underlying philosophers of human you know universalism, right? So one of the founding philosophers of humanitarianism, Jeremy Bentham, alongside Immanuel Kant, right? I mean he warned he he came up with this idea of the Panopticon, which is a, a kind of prison where one guard, one watchman who was unseen by all the prisoners could watch everybody and the prisoners wouldn't know whether they were being watched. And by just the thought of maybe I'm being watched was enough to sort of create this kind of self-modifying behavior. Uh, And if you think about modernity and the sort of colonizing effect of technology, then you start to see these powers. But, but But Bentham warned, you know, in the late 1800s of the risk of this kind of thinking because what you get is, you know, and look at, think about aid today, regulation, surveillance, punishment. That is Benthamite logic of the panopticon. And the risk of that is that when you arrive in a modern conflict like Ukraine, <laughs> with that as the, as, the, as the dominant kind of rubric, it doesn't work because the premises don't apply, right? Let's just fill out the blanks here. So we, we, let's go back to uh, the, the post-tsunami, the evaluation, the reflections that came then. And and that tipping point, a point of no return, you describe in terms of save opting to really become big aid, real big aid. Well, take us through the the time from two thousand five up until now. So we had a in late two thousand and five, uh, a corporate modernising CEO arrived from from industry, um, who was I credit Jasmine enormously with with. You know, revitalizing the humanitarian agenda, not just in Save the Children UK, but in Save the Children worldwide. She rightly knew that this, this 
was what the public knew us for, and therefore it was where we should focus investment. But she also was a you know canny in terms of business. <laughs> she knew this would be a driver of growth for the whole organisation and the whole movement. And you know she was joined by a chair of the board who was incredibly politically connected, uh, and they they were a powerful alliance, uh, which she she introduced the idea of ambition as a good thing, because. In her view, and I think she was absolutely right, we weren't being ambitious enough for children. There were, there were, we were, we were, we were lowballing our efforts, and I, I agree with her. We all agreed with her in the humanitarian sense, and we invested, and it worked. So it meant that we, instead of being overly reactive, we were strategizing on how to respond in advance and generating serious operational capacity that would allow us to maximize our impact in big emergencies. And it, it maximized organizational growth as well. So what are we talking about? We In 2005, what was the turnover? Um, probably less than 100 million still. Of Save UK. Of Save UK. So less than 100 million sterling. Yeah. Uh, at its peak, it was four times that in, in the space of 12 years. So, so quadrupled. quadrupled in a little over a decade. Yeah. Uh, so you can see the... And, if you, and that was mirrored in terms of growth across the whole Save the Children movement worldwide, which doubled. You know, to, to into the billions. And what's your turnover today? Um, last year's accounts, I think they're coming out, uh, I think they've been published now, it's about 240 million. So it's gone down. And that's a function of lots of, lots of, lots of it's peak aid in the UK because it, we've seen peak government aid and we've seen serious changes to how, you know, the British government, you know, handles its age budget. And so all agencies have seen their income from the state go down. So it peaked in about 2017. It's been going down ever since. And if we look at the whole safe family, how, what's the what's the? No, that's not had. We've not seen that repeated around the world. I mean, you know, the US their their overall income has continued to grow, uh, um, despite lots of worries about how political changes might have, might have affected the aid budget. In fact, without the US money, many of the world's humanitarian problems would be a lot worse because they are they are very much you know the lead and kind of always have been. But the UK has lost its its preeminence. You know, the UK used to be one of the big big humanitarian donors, and it isn't anymore. And and that's had a profound effect on civil society here in the UK in in recent years. And if you add it up, it's more than a couple. It's more than two billion dollars. You save the children yeah. globally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's and it's comparable, therefore, with the other big you know the big the big six you know, global INGOs. So you mentioned Ukraine before, mm. and what I think is interesting here is. You go back to 2005, you start building up this scaling. You you really grow, you grow, you grow. We now, as a family, you have more than two billion in your possession. And then we have this massive crisis, yeah. which is challenging us in, in so many ways, right? Let's, let's leave aside, just for simplicity, the ripple effects that Ukraine have across yeah. the world in terms of the food pipeline, but also in terms of attention being detracted from Yemen, from... Pakistan floods from, I mean, I, you almost can't mention all of the incredibly severe crises we have that are not getting the attention that they should because we're all looking at Ukraine. Yes. Right? Yeah. But let's leave that aside yeah. and just look at how are we doing in Ukraine, right? So, insane amounts of money has been raised. Is it the most successful fundraising campaign ever? It depends how you define success. Of in terms of money, in terms of money, um, it's getting up towards being that for for you know civil society organisations in the UK because the big money uh, comes in through the DEC, the incredible generosity 
that we all saw from the British public, you know, that compassion, that mobilization of that compassion, as I've talked about. Um, so the DEC appeal for Ukraine is getting is getting up towards the tsunami, which was kind of a, a one-off. So we've, we've seen that repeated, you know, a generation later, it's become the, the crisis that's had this kind of unique effect, yeah. But I think the difference we have here is that it's so much harder for us to pretend that we are the center of that operation, that we are really the the, yeah. the people helping in Ukraine, because it's clear that Ukrainian society, civil society, all of that society is responding in an incredibly impressive way themselves. And we hear story after story, there's been a couple of studies lately coming out on, on just how big the barriers are for Ukrainians to access all of the money that your generous British public has has donated. Well, that that is what I'm talking about. You know, that is the effect of the neo-feudal capitalist model that dominates. Hey, that is the effect of the regulation, surveillance, and and risk aversion. Because that's what happens. You get this kind of risk averse sector that loses its courage, loses its political activism, loses its boldness, loses its outspokenness, and, and that's I've seen that chilling effect you know, grow. And people worry about it. I mean, people worry about it at board level. They worry about it at every level. But it's very, very, it's power. It's the exercising of power by a, a dominant system. And I think that's what people forget in these kind of debates about change. You know, power is in play here. Absolutely. But what's new about Ukraine? Well, I think what's new about Ukraine, firstly, it's a civil war, folks. Right. And it, we're, well, and we're applying a Western gaze on this. It's an international war. Actually. Well, it's an international war, but it's also a civil war. And I think, you know, people forget that it's not, you know, it's not, it's not monochromatic in that, you know, it, it, it's, it's nuanced. You know, there is a, there are many factors there, and I think what, but what I think it confirms is this kind of transition in the international order. You know, we the idea that, you know, at the end of history, when I started my career, Western liberal order, hegemony, liberal values in the world, the, you know, all of that, right? We thought that was it. We thought it arrived. I think Ukraine has shown us how wrong we were. Merely thirty years later, we're back to an inter-imperial you know, kind of reality in the world, and everyone knows that. But what it means is it, it, so the conditions for humanitarian action, the premise upon which we operate, is so vastly different in that context. And I think that's, that's, you know, that's the problem. We haven't, you know, the political alliances, the way we operate as humanitarian agencies, it's, we're applying the same old stuff in this highly regulated way, this highly bureaucratized way. It doesn't work for Ukrainian civil society, and they're, they're writing to express that you know, very openly. You know. Maybe to be a bit provocative, isn't the difference that it's harder for us to hide how poorly it actually functions across the world? And secondly, that they don't need us as much as in some of the other contexts where we operate. I don't think that's provocative. I think that's self-evident. You know, I think that's a challenge. You know, when, when aid agencies faced into the prospect of a, you know, a, a war, an international war in Ukraine, I mean, say the children started operations there in 2014 out in the, uh, you know, in the east when the first, you know, the conflict first broke. So we, we were positioned you know, within, and our team is Ukrainian and all the rest of it. But I think you're absolutely right. We, we, I don't think, I still don't think we in the West, in the traditional kind of dominant humanitarian kind of model, understand what we're dealing with there. I don't think we understand the geopolitics. I don't think we understand the motives involved. I don't think we understand any of it. And so rather than stopping and going into the deep thinking, which is actually what we're going to do through our humanitarian affairs team, we're going to start really thinking about this. Uh, because otherwise we're doomed to make the same mistakes. And that is what I think the risk of Ukraine is. We'll just, and you're already seeing that, you know, in the letter that the Ukrainian civil society has written. 
everyone reached for the tech report, the Tsunami Evaluation Coalition report, you know, in the, in the, in the run-up to Ukraine. So we must avoid all the mistakes that have been made in there. We're not avoiding any of them because we're stuck in a paradigm that sincerely wants to change but doesn't yet know how to really enact that change. Uh, and, and that is, I think, the moment we're in, which is why it's so profound. So there'll be a legacy on the back of Ukraine that's, you've already mentioned the indifference it's creating to mass extermination events in other parts of the world in the sort of political economy. But I think, I think you're absolutely right. It's going to shine this very, very uncomfortable light on the inadequacies of a model that is proving itself to be at risk of being defunct. Yeah, I think... I think the fundamental question is whether the reputational risk created by our lack of performance in Ukraine are perceived by us as being bigger than the financial risk that make us impose all of these control systems. Yeah, I mean, it, ultimately, it comes down to what are we here for? And there, you know, the, the modern crisis in the aid sector, which we've been experimenting with in thinking terms, we've done a survey of international NGO leaders with Oxford University, where, which points to this. It is a crisis of legitimacy. That is what we've been seeing building up. You know, the, the, the dominant model, the Western-sponsored model, is being critiqued in lots of different ways, and rightly so. I mean, how could it, how could it not be at this stage? So, we, are, so the, we must account for the new conditions, you know, the new global political reality, the new reality of aid, the new realities of you know, an austere world that only produces half the aid money the world needs. If we don't account for that by stopping and thinking about that very critically, we will just keep sleepwalking into these kind of problems and we won't actually find new pathways to change. So, so this kind of, we need a new philosophical renaissance almost for the modern era we're in. And we're not there yet, but I think we will get there if we promote more critical reflection and a different kind of leadership, a more ecosystemic version of leadership that recognizes the networked open reality of, of, our, of our system and is less about the closed boundaries of institutions and whether they are doing well. So you said we maybe 10, 15 times in this intervention, right? And look at who we are. It's Gareth and Las Peter. Pale, male, stale, exactly. Eurocentric, middle-aged white men. We've spent our whole careers in this institutional framework. So I, I think, it, my first reflection is, it's, it's, I think it's a great chapter you've written. I... I like the fact that you you write it while you're still working with Save the Children and not once you sit and collect your pension on your farm somewhere, mm. right? So I think that's the right thing to do. But I think we also agree that it's not enough for these... We are not enough. You and I are not... I mean, so where is that shift in... Forget about the, the money. Forget about localization in terms of getting money out. Let's just talk about who actually sets the tone here. I mean, you quote Shakespeare, you, you're, you're an OBE, for Christ's sake. I mean, it, it's... I'm an establishment it, guy, right? <laughs> now that you bring it up, right? <laughs> but what are you doing to democratize the, the shaping of, of the new humanitarian discourse that obviously we need? How, what are you doing to make sure that voices from outside this echo chamber are heard? So I'm proud of the fact that Save the Children allows this kind of dissenting voice to, that there is, that, and that is part of the process. That's a recognition, that's self-awareness. I don't think there's anybody inside the big institutions who are happy with you know, the, the state of affairs. I'm, I'm yet to think, 
see anyone who really believes that who you know sincerely so i think there i think it's i think you know i believe in the expressed desire for change and so my way of dealing with that is say, okay well let's the time of critique is sort of over the last decade we've been criticizing a sector that wasn't really that aware of this and i think in the last three or four years thanks to the loud voices on the periphery who are you know who are who are pointing this out i think the awareness has been triggered it's been triggered in different ways that are some that are kind of just kind of defensive others that are kind of enlightening and sort of insightful and so when you see that start that start that start to shift then you have to move from being just sort of critical to offering you know new 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 opportunity and so the way i do that is to say look i know why i'm here i know why i collect my check each month and it's to save kids and they need saving and they're out there and big is is beautiful in the humanitarian world when it comes to the scale of crisis so we need to we need to continue to do that that's the day job but we have to be systemic we have to collaborate that means actively embracing in the metropolis of aid where i sit at the apex of the problem inside one of the big institutions we have to embrace the critique and we have to bridge to the peripheries and we have to help in any way we can bring that peripheral view so it's not just sort of protesting and shouting in echo chambers bring it to the table you know, where decisions are made because i think that is possible and i and you know what we saw in surveying 50 chief executives you know over over the last year and producing the report that came out in july with oxford is a sincerity of view but also a sincerely expressed sense of stuckness and the stuckness is to do with it being a different business model the idea of operating from the periphery in the support of the doing of others is a different dominant model and it's also a different leadership culture so we have to approach this in multiple ways starting with saying to people who are who have a legitimate voice that's more legitimate than, than ours on the front lines of aid on the you know and and help them and that's why we built the humanitarian leadership academy it's why my own strategy you know for my department in the uk is to let go of operationality and let in much more systemic work at the edge at the outer edges of the system so that we have more space to support those voices. Let, let's be concrete, right? You know, you, you talk about stuckness. We're talking about some of the these CEOs, uh, some of the best paid, most brightest, uh, best educated people in the world. Being stuck is not good enough. They're there to unstick us. Now give us some concrete examples of how we get unstuck. Well, I think, uh, say, the Trinity K is an example. You know, we have a very courageous CEO who has, you know, who's been in the organization for a few years, has come from a different role in the organization, said, we have to let go of power. Our strategy, our guiding star, as it's called, is to is to shift. It's to shift to to locally led action. That is that is courageous because it means because and the difficulty that's expressed by CEOs is they then have to walk into a boardroom and and express the truth of that and say there's going to be a whole load of significant consequences, people's jobs, you know, all sorts of things have to change, and that's a big institutional effort to move in that direction. So, I give a lot of credit to our, our chief executive for that. Um, you know, and I think there are others like that, but it is not. It's a ten-year job to make that shift. Yeah, but also I've seen strategies from I don't know how many organizations that talk about collaboration and blah blah. When you look at what actually happens, you continue to see a subcontracting rather than a two partnership yeah. with others. Right, the money is uh, controlled so tightly that power doesn't shift, and so it's great that we change the discourse. But if if the practice doesn't change, how, how do you how are you going to change that? How, in a sense, it's great your CEO says that. What about your internal auditor? What do they say? 
Well, I think it, it is a political economy problem. It's a political problem. It only changes when the regulatory environment is willing to take more risk. I so mean, it's the donors' fault. Well, they're part. No, it's everyone. Everyone who's an incumbent in the status quo has to has to look inwardly first and say, how courageous am I? How willing am I to be different? You know, it is possible, but it, I think the reason. I sort of agitate from within is is from a sort of moral it's a moral position you know and it's to remind people about the point is social activism you know to, to change things it's not to you know we, we we're not here to do well as in, as organizations financially we're here to make change in a world and it's much needed so if we are not willing to you know contend with all that differently as we enter our second century as a, of existence then these questions of our legitimacy become very you know, very fair and very real and very pertinent and very urgent. So there's a paradox in systemic change, which is you have to be both patient and urgent. I've stayed at Save the Children for 21 years because I've had the space to space to argue differently. No one's ever said to me, you know, stop, stop this. No one said, there have been moments where people said, are you sure that's not a distraction? But I think there's, there's a growing recognition that we need to change leadership mindsets. We need to change philosophically the kind of premises that we use and that's a thinking exercise and if we do that then we will see the next generation it won't be the incumbents it'll be future generations of leaders who who will acknowledge that you know this era of of the corporatization of aid you know served its purpose at a time but its time came to an end and i probably think that the, the question is whether you can achieve that transformation within the current institutional setup we have I think the incentive structures and the very business yeah. model underpinning a house like like the one we're sitting in here in, in London will, you know, the willingness is there, the individual courage is there, but I also know that gravity sets in over time. And that's why the voices outside are so important, because the closer you get to sort of gravitational center of the system, the more the, the effect is felt. And so disruption and innovation and change and collaboration is easier at the outer edge and that's why i'm proud of you know the role we've played in in creating the humanitarian leadership academy and supporting the founding of the start network in supporting your organization in supporting elra it's always been a, you know a both and for us yes we have to do the day job of saving children that, that we have agency for that we have scale for that we have a history of that but it is not where we are going to center our efforts going forward we're making a radical shift now radical shifts are rare there's a lot of people who for the, all the reasons you cite talk about it has to be an incremental it's it's uh, you know it's incremental change not revolution but i think you actually need to sponsor both you know i think the when i talk to people who are the most most vociferous in their criticism you know from our networks from all sorts of angles whether that's about coloniality white saviorism my role in that you know, as an incumbent uh, any of the any of the modern critiques you know when you when you dig into that they want more radical change And my question to them is, okay, well, you're dealing with power, so recognize that it's about power in the way we're talking, and contend with power on the, and that's kind of the Shakespearean <laughs> reference, contend with power, right? It's not going to become this suddenly enlightened kind of change. You're going to have to, it's going to have to be a struggle, and we're going to have to summon that struggle in lots of different ways. And I think that's where perhaps fear and anxiety in modernity play a part. You know, people have been conditioned And this conditioning effect of the neo-feudal model, you know, regulate, survey, punish, is, is so pervasive. You know, if, unless we can rebel and, 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 and mobilize collectively, collaboratively, politically against that, I don't think we will get where we need to go. And rightly, 
you know, these questions of legitimacy of international NGOs will continue. Maybe as a as a last question, let's turn to maybe here at the end. Let, let's go back to the tension between the humanitarian realist and the humanitarian heart, the institution and the individual. Throughout your chapter in in the book, you talk a lot about the influence that individual CEOs coming in have on the organization. And and if you allow me to paraphrase, it's basically lawyers and bankers running save the children. Well, lawyers and bankers run the modern world, in case anyone hadn't noticed. And, yeah. and all big civil society organizations are a product of the zeitgeist, right? I mean, so that's that we, we, but, but we, we're in the times we're in. But it's interesting that you highlight that as, as a significant sort of explanation of how SAVE has, has developed is these individuals, very skilled people coming in with this background conditioned in this way, that that, that really shapes the institution. Yeah. Yeah. And here's Gareth in the middle of this, who I know to be a very committed humanitarian. And the question I had when I had done reading the chapter is how how much space is there left for Gareth's humanitarian heart? Lots. And that's the great joy of Save the Children. And that's why I've stayed here for 21 years. Many, many people know me as a sort of, you know, old-fashioned, dunantist, loggy, aid worker, bootstraps up. Dinosaur, right? And they say, why have you stayed? I say, well, because... A big institution is influential, and if you can, if you can, and, it, and and of course the debate is always: can you change the master's house with the master's tools, right? Uh, do you need to be on the outside, and is that where you ferment the sort of radical change? My view has always been: do both, try both, and I have no one has ever once in 21 years said to me, "Don't try, don't try, and don't stop thinking." We, we take away your permission to be this way. If they had done that, I would have left, and they haven't. And so the great joy of working here is that, you know, once you've once you get to sort of two decades plus in an institution, you you can see the legacy that, of space that you've had, and, 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 and that's that's been a great joy. So that's why I stay. But my humanitarian heart beats ever more, ever more loudly in terms of, you know, my concern for these issues. That's why I'm writing more about it, and that's why I'm producing these kind of critical reflections it's why I write my own books, uh, you know, because I think the soul and, and the political activism that lie at the heart of what we've been about for a hundred years plus in the West is is at risk unless we really, really stop and think. So you talk about ethics and and, and moral drivers, and how does that fit with the the issues that came out uh, a couple of years ago yeah. around sexual harassment here at headquarters in in Safe? How does it fit? I think it's when you lose sight of who you are, when you lose sight and don't spend time thinking about your ethics and the values base that guides your organization. When you've lost sight of that culturally and when you've lost sight of the heritage of that, your institution is then very vulnerable to external forces that may arrive. Powerful forces might come into your organization and if they're not putting on the organization's shirt, that's valid, if they're not wearing the badge, uh, because it's so it's you know it's so alive in the institution as a culture, then they can impose whatever they like. And I think for many staff at Save the Children, you know, the pain of what we went through, you know, is a is a, a very very serious you know trauma that that sits with those of us who went through it because we saw what was causing it. And it's a, and when you don't have vibrant debate and vibrant space within an organisation for critical reflection, when, then it's easy for people to impose a different culture on you. But Gary, you, you again and again stress that you feel like you have that culture here, that you have had the space to do that. But, but still, right here in, 
on these floors, you you had a serious sexual harassment issue going on, right? Yes. And, you know, all of us who were around at the time, all of us in senior leadership roles, ask ourselves the same questions that everyone else asks around that. Did we know about that? Could we have done more about that? What didn't we do? You know, that that is, that is the, you know, going on con- constantly in Save the Children. And, and the good thing is the organization is radically different now. And again, great credit to the current CEO, the previous CEO who came in after that period, bringing kindness in back into the organization, bringing the values, creating the space for people like me who had kind of survived that period, who probably should have done more, all the rest of it, um, to bring forward this kind of agenda of heritage, of culture, of ethics, of critical reflection. It's created a much safer, a much more thoughtful, a much kinder organization. But as our previous CEO, not not, not the current one, said, you know, kindness doesn't, you can have kindness and ambition. <laughs> Those two things aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah. But in order for that to be true, and I guess that's what I'm saying in my chapter, you must spend as much time on the thinking and the ethics as you do on on the turnover. So now, if we go back to the 25-year-old Gareth, knowing what you know today, would you still make the same choices? Would you still go into an organization like this? Would you still serve scale and big aid the way you have? Or would you have picked a different positioning for yourself? Great question. Um, honestly, and I'm not avoiding it, I think I would have made the same choices. I have not regretted a single day at Save the Children. It has been a journey. It has been a painful journey. It has been a struggle. It has never sat well with me, big aid and the corporatization of aid. It's my humanitarian heart has never really grown accustomed to that. And perhaps that's why I've been successful as a humanitarian director. I've never entirely succumbed to that. Uh, and where I'm happy is that, you know, I've been able to strategize with permission by the organization to to keep the humanitarian heart beating. And that's this is a wise organization. Though that is the those were the that was the political reality, the political economy reality of the times. I've been with six CEOs at Save the Children. Not one of them has said change. In fact, you know, I remember Jasmine saying to me when when she uh, confirmed me as the humanitarian director, you know, this we are what we are. And your job is to fight, fight the good course. Uh, so if I ever catch you asking for permission instead of, you know, forgiveness, you know, you won't have understood your job. So I've had permission to be this way throughout my time, and I'm very grateful to say for that. So there's a wisdom and a recognition in that that I think is very, very important to cite because it, it was talking about, you know, you, you you do represent the beating heart. I spend a lot of time with our public support. I know how valued the humanitarian, you know, history and heritage of say the children is to our supporters and. And we maintain it. So it's operating within, you know, authentically, which is kind of the story. And and I think space to think about that, you know, that reflecting and doing, you know, you must think before you do. It used to, it's sort of a reversal of what most people are used to in aid, right? Think, spend time thinking and then do in the right way. Gareth Owen, thank you so much for coming on True Humanitarian. Thank you for having the courage to write these things and, and take a difficult and painful debate, actually. It's painful because it's, It challenges the the experience and, and and the work that we have done over the years. And what I like about it is that you 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 do it while you're still in the game. You don't sit on the sideline and and reflect on how terrible things are. And you don't apologize in a sense of I think it's, it is a very realist perspective you 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 provide and and I really appreciate that because there are some difficult choices to be made. And and we have to have this blunt, honest debate about them to move forward. So thank you. My absolute pleasure. 
Thank you so much. It's about the rights and the freedom to be For people to choose their path in life and dream Souls of men beyond what you see Stages are different for each who will lead Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks Fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets Ask better questions, pick apart, educate And no one is safe, we're here to build and debate We are, we are searching for more Open up your mind beyond rich or poor For the truth You've been warned, humanitarian. <laughs>